Hey, this is Mohal Joshi from Los Angeles, California. I follow Indian foreign policy and defense with a special focus on Asia. You can follow me on Twitter at Mohal Joshi. Hey, this is Kishore Narayan from Bengaluru in India. I am an international relations expert specializing in global security, conflict resolution, and international negotiation. My focus areas include peace building and digital diplomacy. You can find me on Twitter at Veggie Diplomat. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of India Rising Strategic Affairs Conversations with Mohal and Kishore, a show in which we analyze the happenings from around the world and their impact on India. Before we begin today's episode, we just hope that you and your loved ones are safe at home and are healthy during these troubled times. Remember to stay home and stay safe. So three weeks ago, in our previous episode, we had discussed the uh, the standoff across the line of actual control. Since then, things have exploded, as we all know, and a brutal conflict at one of the places where the standoff was occurring in the Galwan River Valley. As things stand at the time of the recording of this episode, we have official reports stating that 20 Indian soldiers, including one colonel, uh, were killed. This was in addition to reports that many more Chinese soldiers were also dead and, and possibly injured in the conflict. Now, the details of the conflict are still emerging as the days goes by, and it is hard for us to analyze the happenings right away without the complete information. We, however, want to analyze why the conflict happened in the first place and how this was a disaster in the making for all of these years. So, Kishore, uh, why don't you let's start with the rules-based engagement and a line of actual control uh, between India and China. Yeah, sure, Mohal. I mean, uh, most of our listeners would be aware of the kind of uh, uh, rules-based engagement that we have at the line of control. Uh, between Indian and Pakistani soldiers. Similarly, we do have a rules-based engagement at the line of actual control as well. Now, historically, India-China relations witnessed an upswing from the visit of the then Indian Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi to Beijing in December of 1988. Many low-hanging fruits were earmarked as confidence-building measures, which were taken in due course of time. One such was the 1996 agreement on confidence-building measures in the military field along the line of actual control in the India-China border areas. Article 4 is of uh, special interest to us in that agreement. And it began by saying that, uh, I quote here, with a, view of, with a view to preventing dangerous military activities along the line of actual control in the India-China border areas, the two sides agree as follows. In where clause 1 states, quote, Neither side shall open fire, cause biodegradation, use hazardous chemicals, conduct blast operations, or hunt with guns or explosives within two kilometers from the line of actual control. This prohibition shall not apply to routine firing activities in small arms firing ranges." Unquote. So technically, it was right that the Indian soldiers did not open fire, although they ca carried their arms with them. Now, clause four uh, within that same agreement states, I quote, if the border personnel of the two sides come in a face-to-face -face situation due to differences on the alignment of the line of actual control or any other reason, they shall exercise self-restraint and take all necessary steps to avoid an escalation of the situation. Both sides shall also enter into immediate consultations through diplomatic and or other available channels to review the situation and prevent any escalation of tension." Unquote. Now, Mohal, over the years, this imposition of self-restraint has led to pushing, fisticuffs, etc. So, um, all attempts to uh, downplay the tension, all attempts to exercise self-restraint has actually taken this form of pushing and fisticuffs that we generally see in these uh, videos that go viral from time to time. Now, this clause has then been superseded by the 2005 and 2013 agreements in which the corresponding articles stated uh, that if the two sides come to a face-to-face -face situation, both sides 
quote again shall exercise self restraint and take all necessary steps to avoid an escalation of the situation adding that throughout the face to face situation neither side shall use force or threaten to use force against the other now uh, unquote now if you have been a regular listener you will know that we have been saying often that the situation at the line of actual control is always vulnerable to be misused or overlooked by an angry soldier the peace maintained at the line was never going to be permanent so what happened on june 15th is worth having one brief look on june 16 one day later there was an official indian statement initially that one commanding officer of the of the colonel rank and two jawans were killed in a violent face off with the chinese soldiers later in the night there was an additional statement which said that there were 20 soldiers in total uh, indian including the three mentioned earlier in the day who were killed in action these statements also indicated that there were an unknown number of casualties on the chinese side as well indicating a violent and brutal face off be that as it may two things Uh, that we had mentioned earlier continue to remain valid even now looking at all the satellite images no crossing of line of actual control by the chinese troops uh, looking at the satellite images and then uh, chinese did not bring 10000 troops as claimed by some uh, alarming alarmist analysts over the past month month and a half mohan yeah so uh, <clears throat> what was the official shall indian reaction to this uh, quite serious events uh, in which a lot of lives were lost at the border kishor right so uh, it becomes it becomes imperative for us that we try to understand how uh, prime minister narendra modi explained the whole situation to both the people of the nation and also to the other politicians in the all party meeting he claimed he said that 20 of our brave soldiers had made the supreme sacrifice in ladakh but had also taught a lesson to those who dared to look towards a motherland and added that the sacrifice of our soldiers would not go in vain he also said and this is very important i quote neither is anyone inside our territory nor is any of our post captured unquote now honestly this ruffled a lot of feathers questions like if no one came inside our territory why did our soldiers die are the satellite images lying that the chinese have firmly established at finger 4 when our claim line is actually at finger 8 at pangong so when the prime minister is saying that no one is in our territory is he telling only the half truth about galwan and hiding the facts about pangong so in a way this was very unusual coming from the prime minister himself uh, who is known to be very eloquent with his words uh, his statement actually raised more questions than answering especially at a time when national security was being discussed in the minutest of details so the clarification mohal uh, actually came the next day and surprisingly said that mischievous interpretation was given to the remarks of the prime minister this was actually quite uh, uh, funny for me uh, in this clarification it was reiterated that the pm's remarks were focused solely on the events of 15 june at the galwan river basin valley this kind of uh, narrowed it down telling uh, that the prime minister was only referring to the uh, face off and not for, not to any other uh, skirmish point okay so the pm statement will continue to be dissected more and more simply because 3 days prior to that the mea had released a statement about minister jay shankar uh, having a phone call with the uh, foreign minister of china wang yi the statement while making a reference to the deescalation and disengagement along the lac elaborated how the chinese had walked back on their words the statement continued this is very important the statement continued and i quote while there was some progress the chinese side sought to erect a structure in galwan valley on our side of the lac while this became a source of dispute the chinese side took premeditated and planned action that was directly responsible for the resulting violence and casualties it reflected an intent to change the facts on the ground in violation of all our agreements 
to not change the status quo, unquote. So MEA is kind of implying that the Chinese crossed over the, uh, onto our side of the LSE, tried to change the status quo, violating the agreements, implying that they were trying to build uh, tents on our side of the LSE. And uh, the Foreign Minister, uh, External Affairs Minister Jai Shankar had a phone call uh, to express the displeasure and elaborating how the Chinese had uh, not uh, followed their own uh, promises. But the PM statement was quite contrary to all this and that is why there has been a lot of confusion and a lot of questions raised on actual remarks made by the PM himself. Now this will continue to be uh, this will continue to be a issue that will be raised over and over again in the near future and also much later. And uh, I'm pretty sure that we have not heard the last of this. Mohan? Yeah, I mean, the statements by the PM and also like initially like uh, some, including like the Defense Minister Radnath Singh who had tried to downplay the event. So if you combine all the statements from like the MEAF, from PM, from Defense Minister, just like a hot mess, unfortunately. I think this is like one of the drawbacks of the current administration that many, much of the information is not rightly communicated in a very clear and concise manner. And what it, that leads to is everybody is running with their own interpretation in their mind. Uh, many times information comes from sources, sometimes people quotes. So everybody just makes their own interpretation based on their bias. And uh, there's complete uh, slanging, slinging match between the opposition and the prime minister when it comes to what was actually said and what is the actual situation around. It does take a lot of political maneuvering to eventually clarify and there might not be an issue or there might be an issue, but it would be better off if communication can be improved, uh, especially in such a highly charged political and uh, uh, atmosphere, you know, when 20 of our soldiers have been killed. I think if you look back to the Kargil war, I think the daily press conferences, I mean, we might not require a daily press conference, but a regular interaction with the media did help a lot to communicate with the rest of India during that war. So that is maybe a template which needs to be followed. And if you remember, like one last point I want to make is post the events of uh, the Balakot airstrike and the resulting uh, action by Pakistani Air Force the next day, there's a lot of confusion as to like who lost pilots. Uh, and then Pakistani social media was just flooding uh, with fake reports of uh, like old file footage being used as to show that Indian planes had been shot down. So I think it would... Uh, do better like if the government is like more proactive in communicating now I understand that in the every every single bit of information cannot be disclosed but it would be better off to uh, at least keep people informed so the the mischief makers are like out of cut off from the loop you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right I mean uh, that is a good idea of having a regular press conference I mean whenever there is a uh, there is some update to be given to the uh, people. Uh, also, it kind of uh, uh, stops people from always uh, listening to these uh, uh, journalists who come back with uh, the source information. And uh, you never know whether their sources are authentic or not. So yeah. it invariably kind of uh, 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 helps people to know that the official version is the same. That's the government uh, uh, statement. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So, like, moving on to uh, how did the Chinese respond uh, after this e event on June 15th? Yeah. Uh, initially, again, the Chinese uh, kept uh, denying everything. But a few days later, the Chinese issued a statement uh, claiming that the Indians had actually provoked the clash. By then, there was uh, a lot of pressure put on the Chinese to confirm whether they too had lost their soldiers. Um, slowly, uh, they did actually confirm, but they did it in a very uh, roundabout way. The spokesperson said that India's border troops under the guise of darkness uh, trespassed into China's territory and provoked the incident. China's troops had to take necessary measures to strengthen their response and their management of the border areas. He also added, uh, that in the evening of June 15th, 
India's frontline troops went against the agreement reached at the commander level meeting, crossed the LAC, and sabotaged the, Ch sabotaged the tents that the Chinese side had set up. And this was the official uh, uh, communication from the Chinese. And this again adds more to the confusion because the Chinese are claiming that uh, the tents were actually put on their side of the LAC and uh, that the Indians had crossed over and uh, uh, sabotaged the tent. So uh, the Chinese feel that we had crossed over, the Indians feel that they had put tents on our side. So again, it goes back to Mohal, uh, our uh, previous episode, uh, which I would want to plug in here again and again, uh, of how uh, there, there has been a uh, perception uh, crisis, a perception uh, difference about how the claim lines are drawn and uh, how this confusion leads to uh, continued uh, uh, skirmishes along the line of actual control. Mohal? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this was about the uh, official uh, statements from both the sides. So uh, Mohal, now let's actually talk about the actual uh, clash itself. Uh, how do we go about making sense of all the varied reports of the clashes? You want to take that? Yeah, so, I mean, it would be possible for India to accept like any loss of territorial jurisdiction or make any concessions in claim lines. Now, as a democracy, the audience cost makes it difficult for India to agree to a negotiated settlement that even uh, remotely can be in interpreted as concessionary. Although Prime Minister Modi's assertion that there have been no outsiders on Indian territory or any border post has been captured by foreign forces as interpreted as an instance of Modi's willingness to pay a political price to avoid further escalation. The, this interpretation can be contested. Uh, careful examination of timeline of events and detailed media reports of the Galwan clash. I mean, there was an excellent Shivarur's uh, reporting here and also Manu Pabbi's report here indicate that India may have crossed over to the Chinese side of the LAC and Modi's statement might just have been intended to giving China a face saver and ensuring de-escalation at the LAC. Now, China uh, uh, did, the Chinese claim that they did not suffer heavy casualties in the deadly brawl with Indian troops in Eastern Ladakh and they have not revealed the number because a comparison could stir up hostility, a top Chinese official told foreign diplomats uh, last week. Now, speaking to a group of uh, select group of diplomats at the Chinese Foreign Ministry on Wednesday afternoon, uh, the Deputy Director General of Boundary and Ocean Affairs said that the casualties on the Chinese side were not heavy. I mean, she added that the reason for not revealing For not really revealing the casualty numbers is because Beijing doesn't want to stir up sentiments. Um, uh, and I quote that exact casualties were not publicized as China did not want the media to play it up. Now was the time for both sides to find two ways to de-escalate the situation and restore stability. Comparisons may trigger antagonism on both sides, which is not helpful, end quote. He said at the briefing, uh, diplomatic sources told Hindustan Times. Hmm. Which kind of implies, Mohal, that uh, the Chinese are uh, quietly acknowledging that there have been casualties and they're actually downplaying the number uh, by, by just giving a, a notional uh, uh, acknowledgement, telling that uh, they were not heavy. But then uh, again, uh, we have to take it with a pinch of salt. Uh, that's the way I look at it. And uh, I kind of uh, come to the conclusion that they too actually suffered uh, losses, possibly quite heavy. And uh, just, to, uh, just to not uh, make it public and not uh, let it influence the domestic opinion or the global opinion, they are trying to downplay. That's the way I look at it. Mohal? Yeah, so... Uh, that's correct. So now moving to the uh, uh, new question. So what has been the trajectory of strained uh, India-China relations influence uh, by the border issue? Hmm. 
Okay, so uh, starting from the 1950s, uh, Mohal, relations between India and China have always been uh, strained uh, due to deep mistrust of each other, including the uh, 1962 war. There had been a slow but steady warming in the ties between India and China for the past few decades since the historic visit of the then Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi to Beijing in December 1988. multiple confidence building measures in 1988 93 96 2005 and 2013 have combined uh, with cooperation on common issues like climate change more diplomatic engagement increase in bilateral trade and a few other uh, areas which have kind of injected a little more positivity in the relationship um, this This does not take us back to the uh, level of Hindi-Chini bye-bye that we uh, witnessed in the early 1950s, but at least it's far better than the uh, than the depths that we had witnessed in the 1960s. And the border skirmish now has reversed all the gains that we did in the past three, four decades. So uh, whatever rapprochement that we had is all uh, kind of gone now. Uh, the confidence building measures were actually instituted to maintain what was referred to as peace and tranquility at the border which was very violently breached on the on uh, june 15 now uh, again uh, we are plugging our uh, earlier episode uh, we had mentioned that uh, the current agreements to manage the border don't seem to be working when they were drawn up years ago a new modus vivendi will have to be reached otherwise these events will keep happening uh, so yeah i mean we always felt that uh, this was coming now one does not know that the chinese side has fully grasped the enormity of the bloody border clashes as seen by the peace in global times where the chinese experts have forecasted a soft landing for india china relations uh, they i mean they elaborated in that piece that uh, uh, indian india and china Uh, have managed to put that issue uh, uh, onto the back burner and are now focused on the future uh, solely f- focusing on uh, on uh, bringing the tempers down now while the chinese state media puts out bihar opets very frequently this is a big head scratcher uh, as to why the chinese think that uh, uh, this will be a soft landing there is no way that uh, uh, this issue will be forgotten uh, especially in delhi mohal yeah so uh, now what is the history of the chinese behavior during uh, the times of internal crisis in the past hmm. so historically china has always upped the pressure on its neighbors during uh, during times of internal crises one has to remember that the 1962 indochina war was after the disastrous great leap forward five year plan and then the 1979 vietnam china war also came after the tumultuous cultural revolution the state run media curiously after the 2020 skirmish has tried to downplay the incident this has led some to believe that this is more for projecting power vis-a-vis its neighbors with whom china shares an adversarial relationship the assumption here is that this does not seem to be for domestic consumption uh, to distract them for, from the pandemic crisis as otherwise there would have been a flurry of over the top vitriol being published against india across multiple state run media organizations mohal if you remember uh, during the doklam crisis in 2017 all these state run media organizations in uh, in china used to come up with varied kind of articles and uh, stories on a daily basis uh, including one racist video i was mocking like indian sikh indian sikh community exactly so that was like in, uh, so bad exactly so i was i was about to mention that so that way uh, the chinese uh, the, uh, the chinese media wanted to uh, convince the chinese public every day about uh, the kind of uh, acts that were carried out by indians in doklam this has somehow been missing this time around uh, where 
whatever uh, news has been carried out has been very brief and it has been carried out somewhere in page 7 or page 8 in the newspaper so they have actually downplayed it uh, the actual fact mohan yeah so uh, how, so how next question would be like uh, how do the chinese deal with disputes with their neighbors uh, is there a particular method of operation kishor actually indeed they do have so the chinese method of operation uh, is to ratchet up the pressure to enormous levels on the adversary where he thinks that china will crush them the goal is to create a doubt in the enemy's mind about their own capabilities while over projecting chinese capabilities simultaneously the end goal the end goal is to create a fear psychosis in the enemy's mind who would then think that the only resource is to give up some concessions to maintain peace with china in fact mohal there is an old story which was brought out by tanvi madan a senior fellow at brookings institution she writes and i quote her in 1967 as the chinese and indian troops uh, were skirmishing in sikkim deputy prime minister moraji desai was asked on american tv about uh, beijing's behavior and uh, moraji desai had said uh, i quote him now Uh, they are mainly angry that we are not submitting to their pressures and their bullying they would like us to fall in line with their strategy of dominating asia and ultimately the world as i see it unquote so right from the days of uh, the 1967 skirmish uh, uh, when moraji desai was touring uh, the us uh, this has been the uh, favorite rule book for the chinese of over projecting themselves and uh, kind of uh, uh, instilling doubts in the enemy's mind uh, and hoping that the uh, the opponent crumbles amidst a lot of pressure uh, mohal that's that's the kind of uh, method of operation that uh, the chinese work on so and, uh, okay also in the south china sea i think this is the same strategy they uh, do with their asian neighbors where they ratchet up the pressure and bully the other folks to give up claims on various islands in the south china sea mm-hmm. not just on the navy boats but also on uh, fishing boats as well in the in the contested waters yeah correct okay so uh, mohan now let's now look at uh, the possible motivation for the current standoff but from a chinese perspective mohan Yeah, so I think uh, a good perspective of it of this was given by uh, Saurav Jain an article. So, like Saurav Jain is the chief editor of the Daily Defence Review. So he argues, and I'll quote him uh, here. So basically, he says like ongoing intrusions are a result of a belief that there is, and this is the appropriate time for China to secure its Him- Himalayan flank, owing to the People Liberation Army Ground Force recent modernisation. even as the indian army is still in the process of the same the near completion of border works on the tibetan plateau even as india's own infrastructure development is still a work in progress the chinese would be forgiven for concluding that they hold certain advantages over india advantages they that may get eroded over the next decade as china's own internal situation deteriorates and india recovers from the pandemic induced shock so the chinese strategy is to simply consolidate its offensive potential across the himalayas while denying the same to the indian side as far as possible end quote so he also further adds that however the plf uh, plagf uh, or pla ground forces activism ultimately stems from the chinese perception that a pandemic ridden 2020 is the best time for it to buy another 30 years of peace to quote mao zedong's justification for the 1962 war which happened in the midst of the disastrous great leap forward in court so now china basically uh, is like looking to up the ante because it sees this is an appropriate time you know in in the terms of pandemic now china also would also would want to ask that uh, as part of any deescalation step to extract and commitment from india that you know you stop all the worker on your border infrastructure and 
that way like you know they get to hold the first movers advantage in terms of infrastructure connecting to the lac now china would not like to give up control in areas where they have intruded uh, while they would want to india to f- accept the fate or comply india on the other hand is sticking to the assertion that the status quo ante of april 2020 has to be returned to to end this standoff at the border peacefully now another reason could be like <clears throat> china had uh, the 62 war one of the reasons was the g29 uh, highway which was built in the mi- 1950s to develop better access between xinjiang and tibet now the goal during the 1950s and during the 62 war was to push the indian forces well west of the g29 highway now this was to prevent india ever interdicting chinese movement along the crucial g29 g219 highway now during the 1962 war what the chinese did was they occupied all the strategic heights in ladakh overlooking the g229 highway now some are speculating that with the ever increasing accuracy and the ranges of artillery and ever expanding uh, toolbox of surveillance tools china might want to push the border even further to the west to consolidate the threat towards the g29 highway absolutely so mohal actually uh, again i would like to uh, take the listeners back to our previous episode where uh, we actually made the same uh, uh, conclusion where we actually told the same thing uh, telling that uh, increase the infrastructure would mean that their g219 highway might actually be targeted uh, or targetable from our uh, height and our position and that can be a weak link for uh, the chinese so that is kind of being uh, uh, spoken about by all the uh, analysts right now mohal yes kishor so now um, going forward let's look to the future so now kishor what are the geopolitical ramifications of this standoff going forward Uh, yeah so actually india now faces its biggest strategic and security challenge in many decades i mean if anybody thinks that this is uh, not as big as uri or pulwama they are actually mistaken it's actually way bigger than uh, the uri or pulwama crisis that we had with uh, pakistan uh, harsh pant uh, director of study at uh, the observer research foundation orf in delhi he actually wrote i quote him strategy tragedy suggests the one india has had to endure this week often lead to a clarity of vision a vision that was clouded by the misplaced sense of our ability to manage china and quote china would have tried to coerce india to accept chinese superiority and to not challenge it all along the border now the death of the soldiers in the process of the skirmish will harden the opinion about china among both strategists and the common people now uh, the Ch- uh, now the doubts in china uh, in uh, new delhi are going to be overruled by the hawks uh, after this incident again hershpunt mentions uh, i quote him new delhi will now be even freer to make policy choices both strategic and economic which will have a strong anti china orientation surely there will be cost for india but china actions have ensured that today india is ready to bear those costs unquote not many have had the illusion about chinese challenge facing india since quite a few decades but there there was no clear consensus on how to address it as the solutions were varied this incident should remove some of the ambiguity towards china that various indian administrations have held over the past few decades of strong engagement coupled with some sort of balancing as the west india too has found out that closer economic cooperation has not moderated chinese behavior but it has rather emboldened uh, chinese bullying since they developed strong economic interdependence with the rest of the world now historically india has been skeptical of taking any steps to push the chinese back for the fear of upsetting beijing this has not resulted in reciprocal concessions by china towards india for the so called good behavior this has now probably caused beijing to assume that putting pressure on india 
makes them bend to our will. India now has no option but to stand firm and resolute at the border as capitulating now will only invite more salami slicing from the emboldened Chinese. India will have to shed the inhibitions of history where discussion on many sensitive topics was avoided for the fear of angering China. India will have to pick up and choose the right moment to put pressure on back on China on issues like Taiwan, Tibet, Hong Kong, which are an absolute no-go for China. Now also, uh, this clash would mean that Wuhan or uh, Chennai type uh, informal summits would uh, meet a quiet burial. After the burst of enthusiasm uh, uh, that was witnessed after the Wuhan summit, there was hope that this would lead to more progress on thorny issues between the two nations. However, post the Chennai uh, summit, also called the Mamalapuram uh, summit uh, last year, which we had ca- covered in episode 22 on India Rising podcast, we had mentioned that the lack of tangible outcomes means that the significance of these summits is fast decaying at an exponential rate. The oft-used term of managing the relationship, that is, how to manage the relations, despite the various differences on boundary, trade, etc., would now hold little relevance as China has managed to needle India without taking cognizance of her red lines. The mantra of cooperation with competition with China now sounds hollow after the events of June 15th there will have to be a shift towards more competition versus cooperation from now on. Okay, so Mohan, now uh, can we also look at how this standoff will impact India's relation with its like-minded partners? Yeah, so I mean this clash has most likely changed the participation of Australia in the annual Malabar naval exercises. Mm-hmm. which were done between the navies of the US, USA, India and Japan, like three of the four members of the quad while Australia was being left out. Now, I mean, previously, I mean, many of the, especially the foreign analysts had experienced a lot of heartburn over like, oh, why is Australia not being invited? I mean, at back then also I had argued like, and my, you can look up my tweets on Twitter that, you know, this was a, lever that New Delhi was reluctant to pull for the time being. I mean, and that it would be pulled if necessary, if relations with China knows that in the future. I mean, that time has come and I'm pretty sure that this lever will be pulled no matter whether Beijing gets upset or not. Now, military angle to the quad that many would desire. I mean, it's possible would be remain high unlikely because Quad is like more of a naval concept, while India's primary challenge with China remains the land boundary one. So, I mean, it's not like if there was, let's say, a military conflict, like God forbid, like, uh, like, uh, like the navies of the these countries wouldn't be help, uh, wouldn't be like fighting with us, uh, like a land land war. Mm-hmm. So that would be like more unlikely. Now, the expectation is that the India will grow closer to USA even more. And I mean, one could see that the third foundational cooperation agreement, BECA, would be signed in the near future after Lamoa was sound in 2016 and Comcasa, which we covered in, I think, one of the podcasts in uh, 2018. I don't remember the episode number. But uh, during the 2 plus 2 meeting uh, between uh, Sushma Swaraj and Mike Pompeo, I believe, uh, it was signed in 2000, late 2018. Now... The BECA, which stands for Basic Exchange and Cooperation Agreement, which is for geospatial cooperation, will enormously help India in getting information from USA to keep in close eye on like Chinese military and also Pakistan. I mean, we have practically intrusions or infiltration uh, both on the LOC and LAC regularly. So this will help a lot to stay better informed of future incursions uh, like the present standoff. India would also probably look to increase defense cooperation with USA, pursuing, I guess, probably every opportunity except an outright military alliance, which remains very unlikely. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So, again, uh, any lessons to be learned uh, from all these standoffs, both uh, past and present, Mohal? 
Yeah, so on the military angle, like looking back in like, I mean, this will be 2020 hindsight. I think mm. I, we believed we missed something crucial from the summer of 2017. The red flag back then was not the well-known Doklam incident that everybody is like knows about at the India-Bhutan Tribet Prijunction. But it was actually a stone-throwing incident at now the well-known Panganso in August 2017. Now, while everybody's attention was in Doklam, in a standoff on the banks of the Panganso, the Chinese and Indian troops basically pelted each other uh, with stones, which, which resulted in multiple injuries on both sides. Now, luckily at that time, no lives were lost. But I mean, this showed back then, like three years ago, the propensity of the Chinese to now engage in some serious physical violence, which was like not very common in the prior standoffs at the LSE. So like fast forward to today, I mean, they seem to up the brutality by graduating to using wide clubs to inflict some serious damage on the Indian soldiers. So I think this was probably like a red flag we missed in hindsight that the Chinese are sort of upping their... uh, uh, brutality in terms of like engaging with the or fighting with the Indian troops. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good point, actually. Uh, yeah, okay. So you want to also talk about uh, the military ramification of the standoff going forward? Sure. So, I mean, going forward, the danger remains that, I mean, even the current standoff or maybe future standoffs, it could involve like shots being fired in anger. Now you had very well described in in the beginning that there were restrictions on like you know shooting i mean like firing guns uh, close to the lse now as per reports i mean we know that uh, the army has been given a full free hand to take necessary action like if they come under severe uh, threat like they did on the night of june 15th now this would mean that if uh, this would result in a, like a 1967 nathula type skirmish if not outright full-scale war like 1962. Now, the pressure on the both sides, given the proliferation of 24-7 news channels and social media today, would be enormous to give back in kind and not seem to be backing down at all. Now, this can this kind of pressure can easily lead to a cycle of uncontrollable escalation where both sides try to climb the escalation ladder uh, with the conflict becoming much wider and much more severe. Where nobody would, where both will want to have the last shot uh, at the enemy. Now, I think the events of June 15th can possibly viewed as a Kongaka incident, uh, Kongakala incident of the modern times. Now, if I jump back to history, like on October 21st, 1959, nine CRPF personnel were killed in the clash with the PLA. Now, this event. I mean, if you go back and read the reports from that time, hardened Indian opinion against China. And I think even it a uh, bit hardened like then Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru's uh, opinion of uh, China, which led to a chain of events, obviously, which led to the 1962 India-China war that we are all aware of. Mm-hmm. Now, India of today is very different as many have attested to over the past few weeks and even years. Now, please note, that I'm not the point I'm trying to make is that India is not going to be routed in a war like we did in 1962. But rather, I think, I mean, personally, Kishore, if you tell me, I think we are on an unavoidable part to a bigger military clash between India and China in possibly just a few. I, I hope I'm wrong, but I get the foreboding like uh, sense that I think we will be having a military clash sooner rather than later because we're just i mean maybe i'll describe it it later uh, on like why i think so no in fact uh, not only do i agree with you i actually uh, uh, want to add that uh, there will be pakistan added to good measure so india will have to deal with uh, both uh, in sometime in the future oh yeah that's a given uh, that Pakistan will want to jump at any opportunity that they can get back to India. Or, I mean, they always have the sense of perception that uh, India will never react or India doesn't have the capability. But I mean, uh, war with China, I think maybe in the next two, three years or maybe even longer time frame is probably inevitable mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. this point. I mean, this is, I mean, I'm not sure like if people have grasped the enormity of this incident. I personally feel at least that this is the Congala incident of our times. And I think... Uh, 
some kind of war unfortunately is in inevitable in the near future yep yep something got to give yeah okay so uh, what kind of bilateral relationship do we foresee uh, any historical comparisons that you would want to draw mohan yeah so i mean just wanted to expand on the the previous point here now so the geopolitical tug of war i mean slightly diverting to usa and china like now i mean they have a huge con- i mean trade war ongoing so like the geopolitical tug of war ongoing between us and china which they are like trying to uh, gain control of like who's the dominant power in the world is often referred to as what is called a uh, thucydides trap mm-hmm. now thucydides trap uh, broadly refers that when there is one rising great power which threatens to displace another one which is uh, already present there is bound to be conflict now we all have been talking a lot about the thucydides trap between china and usa but you know what it might just be that india building a border infrastructure trigger, triggers this proverbial thucydides trap between india and china instead of us and china which can obviously occur a future in in the future by the way but it might just happen that we were looking at that trap from the us china perspective instead of the india china perspective now some disclaimers here before like uh, some people some might get worked up now with respect to china we know that india can hold its ground in a short military conflict and give china as they say a bloody nose if let's say china resorts to some any military misadventure at the border however it is of course that we are not at the same china level as china economically or militarily so i don't wish to make any grandiose comparison that india is a great power at the same level as china however let's look at it from the chinese side i mean we always look from perspective the indian perspective but let's see from the chinese perspective so if you are a foreign policy mandarin sitting in beijing like what do you see you see that in that the, uh, the indian side is completing i mean which was like uh, the border infrastructure which was like uh, highly uh, speeded up the work for a lack of better term by the current uh, dis- ruling dispensation to have all the 61 strategic border roads completed by the end of 2020 so the we are talking like kishore what probably two and a half years from now correct mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so now this diminishing for the, the, the what they will see is that there is a diminishing first mover advantage of border infrastructure now which would compel the chinese in creating a standoff now versus doing it at a later time when their advantage would have possibly eroded so the chinese in spite of being a significant power i mean we know that they have shown some baffling insecurities and crazy paranoia about its adversaries or neighbors so a rising threat in the anxious minds of the chinese could prompt her to take uh, to to take steps to put india in her place like they you know they feel that it during the 1962 war where like mao thought that let me put like india in her place and nehru because they were getting out of line with mm-hmm. china mm-hmm. now this all combined with what beijing considers a muscular foreign policy from the current uh, uh, bjp government Uh, in new delhi would have forced them in their minds to say you know like hey you know it it might be too late if we want to secure all our claims in ladakh so now is the time to go and let's try to see if we can uh, bully them out of their claims so now as i said like we all might be talking about the thucydides trap in relation to china but it might just be that india building up the border infrastructure uh and also like a rising power in other domains probably triggers this trap which possibly could be a trigger a conflict between india and china maybe if not the this standoff which probably looks unlikely but i mean given the incident of june 15 i won't take any bets but maybe we will be on a collision course on roof of the world i guess in the himalayas i guess so i guess uh, another point i wanted to make is slightly different is like i mean if you go back to history like frederick the great the king of prussia in the 18th century famously said like you know he who defends uh, everywhere defends nothing so i think this is something that indian strategists need to consider since defending everywhere along an extremely long i mean we are talking about like 3 and 1/2000 kilometers and also undemarcated uh, lse is very hard especially in face of this rising chinese belligerence so india has to start developing options of making probes or thrusts as they say where enemies we can least expect it 
I mean, this would be necessary as during the standoff or maybe during a future standoff. I mean, the Chinese could simply refuse to withdraw and this would be, this would force India to with two appealing options, either to accept a new fate accompli or to force, use force to evict the Chinese troops. Now, if you take your mind back to the 1965 war, I mean, with Pakistan, I mean, they did invade into Jammu and Kashmir. But back then, we, we moved across the international border. And I think we were at the... Uh, very close to Lahore, I uh, guess. Or, outskirts uh, of Lahore, yeah. Yeah, outskirts of Lahore. So we need a counter thrust into Chinese territory sometimes because we can't just be defending everywhere. We have to sometimes uh, give them back in kind, I, as they say, to ensure that whenever there is a barter solution, then uh, maybe there could be like counter disengagements in mm -hmm. multiple places. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, you, uh, sorry, you made a good point about uh, Toshiridia's trap and how uh, a rising power would actually uh, want to challenge an established power. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. have to look any further than uh, uh, the Chinese uh, uh, conflict that it had with uh, the Soviet Union itself, where we had the mm -hmm. famous uh, yeah. you know, Soviet split of 1969, which actually ended in a, uh, in a, in a Sino-Soviet war. Uh, for mm -hmm. one of the islands. Uh, yeah, Usuri, the uh, if I'm spelling it correctly, the Usuri Island uh, mm -hmm. incident, I believe you are mm -hmm. referring mm -hmm. to. And that actually, uh, again, uh, the Chinese, uh, like always, uh, made the same uh, posture of uh, projecting themselves in a larger-than-life uh, manner and uh, kind of uh, holding on to what they dearly wanted. And mm -hmm. uh, beyond that, I think... Uh, the Chinese have managed to keep uh, the Russian at bay. Mohan? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think uh, you made a good point. And then one last point I wanted to make on this military angle was that the chief of army staff, uh, M. Naravane, recently, as per a report, directed the troops to tighten patrolling of all the 65 crucial points along the LSE. Now, I mean, at the LOC, we are practically at the border itself, but with, with uh, sorry, the LOC, we are at the border with Pakistan, but with LAC, we remain at some depth and then we patrol up to a claim line. I think a thought in the future, I mean, and military analysts can probably comment on this more. I think we might have to give up this thought of patrolling to our claim points because the sort of no man's land in between the two countries is like going, is always being occupied by China every year for some on some pretext and like i mean they do pack up and leave but what if during the current standoff or during a future standoff they just like say hey, you know what we are not going to leave anymore so we have to probably like go up i mean a thought will have to be put in that what if you just possibly go up and uh, occupy some or maybe all of the strategic points along the lac next summer to prevent some uh, Chinese incursions in the future, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is bound to annoy China. So, a very, it will be to be a very well-planned operation where all the possible counter-Chinese moves have, will have to be wargamed for uh, very uh, uh, carefully. But, I mean, this could be, in theory, like a Operation Meghdut in 1984 where India outrests Pakistan to occupy the strategically important uh, Siachin Glacier. Right, right. So uh, one uh, one point that you make is about uh, grabbing those uh, uh, areas uh, once the next uh, uh, summer breaks out. Possibly I'm also looking uh, two steps ahead is about a permanent uh, manning of the LSE, uh, maybe mm -hmm. with uh, Chinese on one side and Indians on the other side. However uh, different the perceptions may be, that may be one another solution rather than these uh, regular skirmishes that we might have. So let's see how uh, things do pan out in the near future. Okay. So uh, thanks, Mohal, for all these uh, uh, clarifications. Now let's also look at uh, the uh, geoeconomic uh, standpoint and how we have been continuously hearing about a reversal of the trade imbalance. Now, Global Times in an op-ed uh, said, and I quote, India should curb the boycott China voices after the border clash. Blindly associating border issues with investments and trade is illogical. Both sides 
need to cherish precious development opportunities amid the COVID-19 uncertainty. Again, uh, uh, China being China and global times being global times, <laughs> they would want to downplay the uh, impact of the uh, skirmish at the border. And uh, they would want India to forget all that and continue engaging with uh, China uh, as if uh, nothing ever happened. And again, Mohal, as you rightly pointed out, uh, China and Global Times would be mistaken to think that uh, it would be business as usual from uh, New Delhi. So mm -hmm. right now, the government has actually initiated steps to bar Chinese companies from using equipment made by uh, Chinese vendors, Huawei and HTE uh, going forward. Now, in addition, we also have... Uh, uh, we also know that given the Chinese retaliation over the past few years against uh, many countries like uh, South Korea, Australia, Norway, we can expect uh, uh, that any strong steps to curb or even possibly ban Chinese imports is going to trigger a backlash against Indian companies and products within China. China uh, has never been shy to display its displeasure with even some of its biggest trading partners. And India is sure to be no exception there. I mean, one uh, thing that we are uh, hearing right now is about uh, the uh, Canada-China uh, face-off of how uh, Canada imprisoned uh, the daughter of uh, the head of uh, Huawei. And uh, right now there are talks of uh, uh, transferring her to the United States. And uh, China is mighty angry with uh, the Canadians in that regard. So there might be this kind of uh, uh, event happening with uh, the Indians also, and India will have to be prepared for all such uh, repercussions. Now the growing trade deficit continues to remain one of the biggest challenges in the relationship. India has lobbied vigorously for greater access for Indian goods and services in the Chinese markets with little success. All this while Chinese imports have continued to surge, ballooning the deficit to record levels. Even Modi government, for all its success in speeding up border infrastructure, has not been able to tackle this problem of increasing trade deficit. For example, India's trade deficit with China stood at $31 billion in 2013, and it rose over 80% to 56 something billion dollars in 2019. The good news uh, that after topping at 58, it has slightly come down to 56.7 billion dollars last year. So let's hope that we have actually found the plateau uh, and we are now uh, dipping down. And uh, we hope that uh, the trade imbalance will be permanently reversed going forward. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, uh, just like one more comment that actually some reports said that now the imports from Hong Kong has increased. So the question mark still remains whether have Chinese have found out a circular out to make sure that the deficit is lower by shipping goods through Hong Kong. But I think the anger in terms of like what we see on the WhatsApp forwards from like the various groups, it does seem that there is a anger of uh, among the people to boycott Chinese goods. Now, a 100% boycott is not going to be successful for sure or not possible. But even like even a 10 or 15 or a 20% reduction in uh, use of Chinese products will still have a substantial impact on the trade deficit and also uh, hurt China economically where possibly jobs could be lost in the Chinese market. Oh, absolutely. And it is actually a uh, two-pronged uh, strategy. I mean, uh, you're not going to you're not going to go buy those goods from some other country like South Korea or Taiwan. Uh, India is actually talking about building capacity itself, wherein it would produce the goods, it would create all the jobs, and also uh, do it for the export market. So while growing itself, uh, India would also be uh, tapping into the export market, uh, on which uh, China pretty much has a monopoly. Uh, all these years. So I think it's a two-pronged uh, strategy. And as you rightly pointed out, uh, even if 15-20% uh, uh, is actually deducted from the trade imbalance, that would mm -hmm. uh, go a long way in uh, reversing it. 
Okay. And, now, I, and uh, I think also on the 5G perspective, I think we have uh, probably like this would, uh, uh, I mean, the equipment like would be a, a significant step uh, by barring this uh, 5G vendors, but also in other domains, I don't know if the similar steps will be in uh, will be coming from the government in the next few months or years or will this be i hopefully it's not a temporary phase where there would be bars and then suddenly government reverses its policy in the near future we hope that thing doesn't come to mm-hmm. bear uh, no actually i have seen quite a few uh, state governments like maharashtra and uttar pradesh actually go ahead and take uh, decisions to cancel uh, bids given out to uh, chinese uh, bidders uh, simply because uh, of the Chinese presence and uh, these state governments have also announced that they would go for a uh, repeated uh, bid and uh, would not allow the Chinese companies to uh, take part in the bidding process. So I think mm-hmm. it's not just about the uh, central government, uh, even the state governments are now waking up and uh, they are looking at this as an opportunity to build their own manufacturing base or uh, help in their own uh, uh, attempt to create more and more jobs. So again, uh, it's probably uh, good that we are seeing this kind of a reaction coming in, not just from the central government, but also the state governments. Okay, so uh, in closing, uh, what I would want to uh, point out is, yes, we all know that uh, it's kind of uh, agreed that India now has to look uh, and seriously introspect and also uh, understand that it's now or never that India will have to start uh, challenging uh, China when it comes to border skirmishes and also grow stronger uh, to to challenge uh, uh, China, not only in the uh, short run, but also in the longer run. And the only way that it can happen is uh, by India growing at a quicker pace uh, consistently over the next few decades. And for this, uh, the people participation also needs to be quite uh, uh, active. And they would also have to realize that you cannot beat China within uh, within a T20 match uh, duration. And it's a longer match, that longer game that has to be played of uh, strengthening yourself and also weakening the opponent. And eventually, once you grow bigger enough, you can actually challenge uh, the adversary China and possibly defeat uh, it in its own game. Uh, Mohal, you have any closing comments on, uh, on this? Yeah, so I would like to add to yours, I guess, the, the, the imbalance economically, which has mm-hmm. grown over the past few decades, uh, has to be the delta has to be sh- shortened. Obviously, we won't overtake China anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But if we can close the gap, it will help us to push back more vigorously at China and also develop our internal capabilities to stand up to Chinese bullying. Exactly. Okay. So in my closing comments, I think this is something I even mentioned on one of the podcasts, like our podcast in like around the end of 2018. So, I mean, I keep saying to folks that India's two primary challenges are basically China and China. Pakistan does occupy like I mean a disproportionate time of our imagination on in the minds of Indian citizens also some of our nighttime news 9 p.m. news programs. but I mean the largest strategic challenge has always been China all along which unfortunately has worsened over the past few decades for the comparison in the challenges to both of India's adversaries I mean to Pakistan and China I would like to uh, give this comparison that I've been giving out for the past few years. I mean, a more simplistic exam- example. So, like, I compare that Pakistan is like an annoying rash that suddenly mm-hmm. flares up from time to time, but it is manageable and can be kept in control most of the time. The rash might bother you a lot of times, but it's not going to kill you eventually. Now, China, on the other hand, is like the slow moving cancer that will stealthily spread throughout your body and slowly eat you inside. Uh, making you weak. Now, by the time you react to it, it could possibly just be too late. And if you don't take preventive measures early on, it is sure to kill you in the end, unlike that annoying rash, which is sort of like Pakistan. Mm. So, I mean, this shows that the challenge that Chinese is the bigger challenge, but like the Pakistan is like what makes the news, unfortunately. So the Chinese 
threat until this event would have been downplayed in several quarters. Now, uh, coming back to the China question, now even though there have been like, what will happen next? Like there have been several rounds of talks for de-escalation between both sides. I mean, there have been reports that actually they've been ramping up the deployment as late as June 22nd. I mean, there then there have been some newer reports just I read today that they could have been uh, slightly reducing their strength post June 22nd, but it's a lot of it is yet to be seen what they do. Now, this means that the standoff, which has started in early May, could last for a very long time and probably will last longer than the 73-day Doklam standoff in 2017. Now, this standoff could very well last very well into the summer or an early fall before winter kicks in. I mean, and also like a de-escalation from a huge military buildup is going to take time, especially when the trust factor is low. Now, this could possibly follow the template of the 1986-87 Sundarangchu standoff in Arunachal Pradesh, which lasted for a whole one year. And however, one has to note that the China of 1987 under Deng Xiaoping was more of a bide your time and hide your strength, which is not the case today mm-hmm. under Xi Jinping, right. which is more like looking to flex his muscles. Now, Xi Jinping in the short run would not be wanting to see into blinking first in the standoff with India where India is standing firm and resolute at the border right now. Now, if China is perceived internally within the CCP to be backing down, it will provide more ammunition to Xi's critics who are already not happy with his handling of the pandemic crisis. So to conclude, I mean, this might be a long drawn standoff, maybe lasting months or possibly a year, where uh, it will just be a question of uh, who remains firm at the border uh, more in this case. Yep. Kishore? Okay, uh, that's a good one, uh, Mohal. Okay, so before we wind this episode, uh, let's switch our focus to recommendations. Mohal, uh, you came across anything that you would want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I would recommend the Shivarur article where he broadly outlined how the clash on the night of June 15th occurred. If anybody is more interested in like what the sequence of events were, mm-hmm. he describes how... Uh, the Indians went and dismantled the tent and which led to a larger clash later. I don't want to like go through all the details here, but that's a fascinating read on Shivaru's article uh, on India Today. Hmm. Hmm. Kishore, what is your recommendation for this week? Uh, I actually would want to recommend uh, the interview of uh, Colonel Dini, retired Colonel, by uh, Nitin Gokhale, available on YouTube uh, on the Stratnos Global uh, channel. Uh, where they actually go about uh, discussing all the varied uh, skirmish uh, points and how uh, the skirmishes and uh, the claims of uh, LAC being uh, violated uh, have all been uh, discussed in that uh, channel, uh, in that interview. And it's, a, it's quite a fascinating interview. I would want uh, our listeners to actually go watch it. Okay, so uh, with that, we come to the end of this week's episode where we covered in detail the uh, deadly clash witnessed in Galwan and the long-term ramifications. Uh, To continue hearing about such interesting topics, do subscribe to our channel India Rising wherever you are uh, listening to us. If you have not left us a review yet, we urge you to do so as it helps other listeners like you in finding us. We would also like to hear from you if you have any suggestions on any topics that that you would like us to cover. Do remember that these topics should be directly related to Indian foreign policy. Until the next time, this is Mohal and Kishore signing off.